0: To find out if it's right for you. Want flexibility? Take yoga.
2: Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, Alarmy! Before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of Guest Alarmist, where I step aside and let a guest walk us through a personal tragedy, and together the Alarmist crew figures out who's to blame. This month, Alex Paul discusses the Beverly Hills Hotel Heist the promise of a free vacation Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) that's good i I like that nothing in the world this world is free yeah
2: Mm -hmm. nothing in this world is free and and that's what kind of made us dig deeper is like we had no money we were broke this seemed like a little fun opportunity and we could not
1: let it go Mm -hmm. we
2: wanted it to happen we couldn't just be like no we're not peter we're not on the reservation goodbye turn around we were like no like this is our one little freebie fun thing like we should have it
0: we want, like
2: I- it's like maximizing like on sales you know when when there's an an offer you can't let it go yes you can't let it yeah go. I, I know i can't let it go and apparently <laughs> alex I, also I can can't let, let, it, let go it go so easily.
3: <laughs> I, I love letting <laughs> offers go. <laughs> I love when offers come along and I'm just like, nope, nope Not no, gonna thanks. Go. Thanks.
2: Not going to take it. Not going to take it. Go to patreon.com slash The Alarmist and subscribe today. Now, on to our episode. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert Joe Turner. Joe is a true crime writer and author of The Boy in the Walls, the bizarre story of Daniel LaPlante. Let's hear what he has to say about the case of Daniel LaPlante. Hi Joe, thank you so much for joining us today.
4: No problem. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
2: So uh, first off, I wanted to ask you, what is frogging? When did the term come about? And, and can you give us some history on this act?
4: Ah, Well, it's quite a, a modern phenomenon, I believe. Well, well, it's a modern term anyway. It's only been conjured in the past few years. Um, the history of it is, um, well, it's not very well documented, I'm afraid, because there haven't been many cases of this happening at all, really, in like in, in human history. It's very rare. So there's, the trace about the history of it is quite difficult. But um, basically means someone hiding in your residence without your awareness, you know, and that can extend from, you know, homeless people trying to find shelter or, um, as I'm sure we'll delve into in a minute, um, you know, more sinister intentions from some of the, some of the hiders.
2: Yes. And how, how does it differentiate from squatting?
4: Well, see, that's i I've never really looked into that. I mean, it's, <laughs> kind of, it's kind of, I think, but frogging is a little more. There's an element of sort of sinister intentions with frogging, mm. whereas with squatting, it's kind of, you know, if they get caught, they happily say, "Look, I'm looking for somewhere to, somewhere to stay," because usually squatters usually homeless people looking for somewhere to, you know, to shelter. Whereas frogging has a little bit more. There's another, a different element and more sinister overtone to frogging.
2: Now, in our episode, we we focused on the crimes committed by Daniel LaPlante. Uh, Yes. Can you start by giving us some backstory on Daniel, uh, where he's from, what his childhood was like, and what was his family life like?
4: Absolutely. Well, Daniel LaPlante was born in um, 1970 in a place called Townsend, Massachusetts. a very small rural area of um, of New England. Um, Growing up, Daniel's life was was very chaotic. It was sort of like... um, it was kind of the perfect storm of circumstances for a, a deviant to thrive, really. I mean, Daniel was the third of four children. And growing up, he was... Well, it, it all, all started before he was even born because he was the product of an affair. Like He wasn't his, his air quotes, biological father's son. Um, and right away from that moment, his life was sort of sent into, into turmoil. He was... Um, he was abused from a young age, right from the age of like two to, to five, by his real biological father, because his biological father discovered that um he was a product of an affair. Uh, and from that point on, he just kind of got worse for Dan. I mean, he wasn't the smartest kid in the world, so he struggled at school, he struggled academically. He He kind of, he surrounded himself with people that kind of aided his... His thirst for chaos, really. Like he was, um, he always he hung around with other delinquents. And by the age of twelve, thirteen, he was burgling houses, starting fires, you know, hurting animals, trampling on vegetable patches, causing all sorts of trouble. And then it progressively got worse from there. So that was his childhood in a nutshell. It was a, a classic cliched, you know, troubled childhood. Really, you couldn't, you couldn't make up the stuff that he went through.
2: Mm. Who, who is Tina Bowen and how and when does she come into contact with Daniel?
4: Tina Bowen was the this the object of Dan's affection, basically. It all started when Dan Wood was uh, 16, 1986 this was. Tina was uh, 15 years old. They met at an an open school event i'm not sure if you're familiar with those i think they're an antiquated uh, antiquated thing now. <laughs> they met at an open, open school event well actually i should go a little bit further back on that tina um she was the typical teenage girl in the 80s you know madonna hoop earrings big hair that kind of thing um and of course like a lot of other teenagers she was boy obsessed she used to give out her number to all of her all the people in, a lot, a lot of the boys she, she liked in town. And then one day, she gets a, a call from someone she doesn't know. And on the other end of the phone is this boy saying he's a young jock, athletic, blonde, blue-eyed, you know, stud. Tina believes him. Tina takes his word for it. And then they chatted for, uh, you know, a couple of couple of months, I believe it was. And then one day, Tina was at this open school event that I mentioned. And she gets a knock on her shoulder, turns around, and she's and, and there's a boy there. And the boy's disheveled, greasy hair, black leather jacket. And she said and the but the boy says, I'm Danny, I'm the boy that you've been talking to on the phone for the past few months. And now of course Tina's you know, she's uh she can't quite process it because the person on the phone she believed was a, a blonde haired, blue eyed uh looker and Danny was the, the polar opposite. So, Tina kind of um, humoured him. She entertained him. She she gave him a chance, basically. Well, she kind of I say led him on, but she kind of felt sorry for him because he, you know, he didn't look the best, and she put some effort into this relation, this you know, relationship air quotes she had with him. So they went out on a few dates. It didn't go anywhere, and then after the second date, Tina shut the door on him. Never saw him again,
2: hmm.
4: and that's that's Tina's that's Tina's backstory. Yeah.
2: When does Tina start noticing strange occurrences inside her home? Uh, what kind of things was she experiencing?
4: Her, exp- her strange experiences began in it was early 1986. It was around March 1986, and it it began somewhat innocently because there were Tina had two sisters. She had one biological sister named Karen, one adopted sister named Kathy. Now Karen was nine at the time; Kathy was sixteen. So there were three girls in this house. They they didn't have a mother because she passed away the same year from cancer, sadly. Had a father, however, he was always at work because he had to provide for for these three girls. Um, so these three girls were the you know the main occupants of their home, and started innocently enough. It, there, were, there were little things going missing, and these little things. Each girl attributed to one of the other girls. Like if something went missing at the cupboards, mm. Tina would just assume it was Karen or Kathy. You know, if some if a alcohol bottle, you know, got a little, you know, if someone drank out of that, Kathy would assume it was Tina or Karen. It was, yeah, it's stuff that you overlook when it, you know, if provided it happens in small doses, and then over time, between March and late 1996, uh, things got progressively worse there would be knocks against the wall there would be mess left out on the tables there would be little periods of music blaring without explanation tv channels would come on and when i say that it sounds like a cliched haunting you know but Mm that's really I've, i've spoken to these girls at length for years now and they've told me it's all it's absolutely true uh, TV channels would change. TV would come on. The volume would go up, and it was all like little brief flashes of. well, There's no way to explain it. It's, they assumed it was it was they were being haunted because it was the youthful naivety of, of teenagers. They assumed it was their mother's ghost trying to contact them. Uh, and then over time, it became there were more sinister you know, connotations over time. There was an incident where Tina woke up one morning covered in crumbs from a sandwich that had been left out on a on the table the night before. Oof. There was one incident where <clears throat> all the all the girls woke up and they got into a blazing argument because someone had left their mother's wedding dress out on the bed. There's mm-hmm. someone had just like, posed it on the bed and they all thought it was one of the others playing a trick on them. So in it, And obviously none of them owned up to it. And right. then it got to the point where Kathy, the, who was the oldest girl, the, the non-biological sister, uh, she needed to go to therapy because she was convinced that she was going insane. And their father, Frank, um, of course, he, all he saw was the aftermath. So he didn't really know. He never saw these things happening in real time, you know. He never yeah. saw a TV channel jump up and change and whatever. He, when he got home at 11 p.m. midnight, he just saw the mess that had been created. And he assumed it was his daughter's this mess. And of course, they all denied it. So he said, <laughs> look, you girls, there's something wrong. He assumed it was the, the trauma of losing their mother. She said, And he said, look, you need to go to therapy. You need counselling. You need to see someone because this is not healthy. And then it carried on like that for uh, there was about eight months of it in total before the um inevitable discovery of the truth, which I'm sure yes. we'll get to in a minute. And, and, sorry, and can, you, stop,
2: can you tell us more about this discovery? How does it all come to a head?
4: Uh, well there were two two incidents where which really um which really stand out. It was December the eighth, nineteen eighty-six um the girls got home because the the tina and kathy the two older girls they worked at um, a local horse farm and they got home after work one night um and their house was in com- a complete state it was a com- complete disarray it was like the worst kind of as, imagine a poltergeist playing havoc with your house that's what they come back to and there was a message on the wall saying come come and find me i'm in your room there was a message written in, in shaving foam on the wall that said, "I'm I'm going to kill you." Mm. There was um, a picture of the, the Bowen family on the wall with a knife stuck through Tina's face, um, and they, they, the girls got home to this, mm. um, and then they called their dad. The dad came home as well, and again, the dad thought that they were just messing around. He thought they were just bored girls, and they were, they were they were messing with him. So. The dad kind of kicked off, and he and he started looking around the house. And Tina and Kathy were like, this is not us. Someone else is doing this to us. Someone else lives in our house. And then Frank, the father, starts rampaging through the house, saying, oh, whoever is this, I'm going to find them. I'm going to find them. And then he pulled open a, a closet door. Um, and to his shock, there was a young boy in there. And this young boy was dressed in a massive coat. He had face paint on and he had his hair smoked up in a mohawk. And Frank, he, he can't really explain this, but he kind of had a moment of, like, he was so shocked he couldn't really process what he was seeing. Mm. And then he yelled to Tina and he said, I found him, I found the intruder. Um, and the way he worded it suggested that Tina knew that this person was hiding in the closet, you know, and he, he imagined Frank thought it was all this big conspiracy, and then the, the person in the closet comes out. He's got um, a wrench in one hand, uh, and he and then Frank suddenly realizes, no, this is not someone who my daughter knows. This is a stranger in my house, and then of course the the stranger he orders the whole family to get in the upstairs bedroom. He threatens them with this with this wrench. He says, you'll get in the bedroom now. So there's Frank, Tina, Kathy, Karen, all in hysterics because they've just opened the, the, the place that they look at every day and there's someone hiding there. He tells them all to get into, into, the, into the little bedroom upstairs. They do. They barricade the door shut. And then all they can hear from outside is this stranger burgling their house. They hear him going around the house, just picking things up. And, they, and to this day, they don't really know what he was doing there, but they can only assume he was, you know, robbing things. Sorry, robbing is a colloquial British term for stealing. So sorry if that but doesn't yeah. translate. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to hold back my Britishness.
2: Um, <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> thank
4: you. Thank you. And then, um, so these, uh, these, the Bowen family are barricaded in this room upstairs. Tina, for all her heroism, opens the door, oh, oh, opens the window, sorry. Climbs outside, jumps out into the back garden, runs to the next door neighbour's house, calls the police. She says just to the neighbour, she says, someone's in my house, someone we don't know. Because at this point, Tina didn't know who it was, didn't recognise him. Someone's in our house. Called the police. The police came around within an hour or so. And by this point, the police had become so sick of the Bowen family calling them, because every time something would go wrong, they would call the police and say, look, someone's in our house. The police never believe them. You know, it's, it's a perfect example of real life the boy who cried wolf they were like nothing is in this house it's just girls messing with us so this time the police came around and frank corroborated their claims he said yes there was someone in our house and he barricaded us he was trying to either burgle us or kill us so the police searched this house and they found nothing they found no trace of anyone they found no one hiding in any of the walls in any of the closets anywhere, any of the cool spaces, nothing. And so the police were getting very tired at this point, because they were like, what the hell is going on here? So they left it. Now at this point, the barn family was so terrified to stay in their house, they disappeared for a few days. Mm. They went to the neighbouring town of Fitchburg, stayed there for two days. Then they came back two days later, December the 10th, 1986. And but this time, it was, it was the evening, and when they came back, they Frank, the father, saw a light on in the upstairs bedroom. Oof. And then he saw a silhouette at the window. He said, hmm, is that someone in my house and shouldn't be in my house? So rather than go inside, he said to the, the girls, we stay back, we call the police, we get them to storm inside and find whoever this is. So they did, they called the police. And boy, you cried wolf again. The police arrived. Frank said, look, I just saw someone in there at my window. No one should be in there. We deserted this place two days ago. Police went in, searched everything they could, searched all the usual spaces, all the bedrooms, everything. And they found nothing. Then one of the officers, a guy named Steve, really great guy. He was down in the, he went down in the basement Mm. and the, Steve, I've talked to him a million times and he, he can't explain this, he said I just knew that someone was in that basement, because he's, he's like an experienced hunter, he's got sort of he reckons he's got tracking skills, you know mm-hmm. and he said, I know someone is in this basement Um, so Steve pulled this basement to bits, he checked every single nook and cranny, right and there was this one section of the basement with um. It's this hard to picture, but if you imagine imagine the corner of a room, then imagine a, a plank of wood placed against the corner, so it makes like a triangle shape at the back.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And
4: it's, you know, it's and in front of this board there was um, a washing machine and a, a toilet, and the board hid all the pipe, the piping equipment at the back, all the plumbing equipment. Um, Steve saw that and thought, "Hmm, I think someone could get into that space." So Steve he grabs this board. Pulls away, pulls it slightly away from the wall, and there's a gap of about seven inches, he said. And then he put his hand into this gap of seven inches. He felt around and he felt a pile of clothes. <gasps> he dig deeper. Grabbed another hand. <laughs> and he pulled pulled up. And then he realized he had he had hold of an arm, a human arm. Pulled it out. Steve was like, someone in here. This is someone's hiding in the in this section behind all the, the washing machine and the and the plumbing equipment. Yanked him out. Boom. There he was, the intruder. Wow. Um, hiding behind this very tiny gap, sort of like a tiny fridge, basically, a refrigerator that can only be accessed by a gap of around seven inches. Which the, the police officer that arrested him, I've to him a hundred times. He says, he can't believe. Anyone, even a child, could get into this tiny space. However, they pulled him out. There was Daniel LaPlante, and the truth quickly surfaced. He'd been hiding in this house for about eight months or so, tormenting the girls from afar. Head over to
3: Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Muscall and Andrew Scott.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: And no one was looking for Daniel during this time and none of his family was out looking for him?
4: Well, a perfect storm of circumstances there because Tina assumed that um, Danny had didn't want to know her either because she dumped him. She assumed he wasn't a. Uh, wasn't interested and they lived around eight miles apart tina and danny so it wasn't like she would run into him you know around town they went to different schools they hung in different circles so it wasn't like they would run into each other around town um danny's parents that was a different story because they either half the time they didn't care where he was and a lot of the times they didn't he didn't stay overnight in the house he would get to the house um just after frank left for work in the evening then he'd stay there until around 11 p.m and then he he'd sneak out the back and he'd go home so he was never really out overnight in any occasions where he did stay there overnight he told his mom and stepdad that he was staying at his friend al's house so he, he always had like a cover you know mm. so he really um, covered himself and when he took them hostage he was covered in face paint and he he couldn't recognize him basically and at this point, Tina hadn't seen him for eight months, so she didn't recognise him at all. And Frank and the other girls had never seen him before it hadn't been in any detail, so they didn't recognise him. I see. So it all so he had a lot of fortune in his favor, really.
2: Yes, and I, I'm, I'm struck by how it, online and 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 in things we've read, it says he threatened them with a hatchet, but uh, I, I believe it now yeah. is now a wrench, correct?
4: It, was a wrench. it wasn't a hatchet. Yeah, there's yeah. so many, so, so many small details about this that's just kind of that, that's been you know morphed into into myth. There's right. loads of little seeds of ideas that have transcended what, what really happened and become urban legends really and it's quite it's quite fascinating how that's happened like i mentioned the, yes. I mentioned the wedding dress earlier um, down at one point took out um uh, tina's mother's wedding dress and laid it on the bed and then there are some sources that say when he was found in the walls he was wearing the wedding dress which he wasn't right. that idea <laughs> came from the sea and there's there's like a million different things like that
2: now, yeah. he, once he's taken into custody, uh, he's later released on bail. I'm assuming he was considered a, a low risk. Uh, why? Why was he released? And, no, he, uh, he
4: was in, he was in juvenile detention for ten months. So okay. from December, he was from December '86 to October '87, he was in juvenile, um, and it wasn't until his mother posted bail, ten thousand dollars, that he was able to get out. So he should have been in there a lot longer, but his mother got him out. I see. Yeah.
2: After he's released on bail, he it seems like he goes right back to his previous behavior, and sadly, this time he commits murder. Can you discuss the crimes that uh, happen and uh, how they lead to this triple homicide?
4: Right. So he was released on bail in October 1987. And almost immediately, he was back to his life of, of delinquency. He was burgling houses by late October, November, back to, uh, straight back to his old gram. He didn't learn anything in juvenile at all. And there was one house that he focused on intently, and that was the home of Andrew and Priscilla Gustafson, who lived around a mile away from Dan, and his house was connected to theirs by a stretch of woods. Like Dan's house backed onto the woods. You go a mile through there, you get straight to the Gustafson house. Um, not sure why he was so obsessed with this home, but the one theory I had is that um, back in the 70s there was a, a famous murder that happened right next to the Gustafson home, and you can kind of see the house from 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 where they were, and and that's one of my personal theories as to why Dan focused on this house so much. Um anyway, the home was belonged to Priscilla, uh, Priscilla Andrew and their children, William and Abigail, who were eight and five. Now, Dan Burgle, this home multiple times, he was in and out uh, over the, between October and December 87. But then on December 2nd, 87, he broke into this house sometime in the early afternoon. He waited in there, and then at around 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon, Priscilla returns home with her son, William, and um, Dan, for reasons which are, we're still discussing today, we don't quite know why, he came prepared with a pistol that he'd stolen from his stepfather, and a bullet that he'd stole a lot of bullets that he'd stolen from his neighbor. Mm-hmm. He takes Priscilla and um, William hostage, gets Priscilla into the bedroom. He ties her up, he binds her, he restrains her, um, he gags her, and then he leaves her on the bed. Meanwhile, he takes William takes him to the upstairs bathroom, puts him in the bathtub, fills it with an inch of water, puts his foot on the back of his head and drones William in his bathtub. Now, meanwhile, Priscilla is still alive in the bedroom. Danny goes in there. For some reason, we don't know why, Danny did a lot of weird things which didn't really, uh, you know, help um, add anything to his crimes, just little odd tokens of, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. He puts a gun inside a pillowcase. And then he shoots Priscilla through it. Wow. Maybe it was an attempt to silence it. I don't know why. And then, just as Dan is leaving the house, he's walking out, and this is one of the most tragic things about this case: is that just as Dan was leaving, like literally seconds crossed, then Abigail, the other the other child, twelve-year-old Abigail, comes home, sees Dan at the door. Dan realizes he can't let this young girl go. Like He knows that it's it's Priscilla's daughter. He says, mm. he, he can't let this girl go. She has to die as well. So he takes Abigail, takes to the downstairs bathroom, does the same again, puts her in an inch of water, comes on her head, drowns her, dead. Oh, three members of this family, triple homicide. Now, why Dan didn't shoot them Um, I'm not sure, but however, Dan, sometimes important to mention that he was kind of, he was obsessed with Nazi, uh, torture experiments. Not if you're familiar with those. And one of his most preferred ones was the submerging people in water. So I think that's where he got the idea from. Wow. He did that. Horrible. That's that's a little little nugget that's never been mentioned anywhere.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Now, how, how was Daniel then caught by the authorities this time?
4: Well, this is quite. Uh, it's um, it's good because the police officer that arrested Dan, when he, they found him in the walls of the Bowen home, he that guy Tom, he immediately suspected that Dan would be responsible for this. I mean, it was a massive escalation from stalking to triple homicide. But the Tom thought, there's one guy that is capable of this, and he lives a mile away. I think this is the the escalation of Daniel LaPlante so uh, the local police they go and they try and track Dan down, they don't have much luck they find him at a library they ask him about the murders and Dan denies everything and then over the next 24 hours there's some evidence discovered in the woods between um, the Gustafson house and the LaPlante house they discover um, there was a couple of hair samples, there was a shoe print there was a um, Hair fiber there was a sock that they discovered. So, oh, well, I should mention as well that the Gustafson scene there was—he um, Daniel left a porno magazine behind for some reason. Still don't know why to this day. And he'd also filled two glasses of wine and left them on the kitchen table. And 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 one of the reasons why Tom suspected Dan is because Dan did similar things at Bowenstein He would fill cups of alcohol and just leave them around. And no one really ever knew wow. why. So that was it's like a, a little signature or ritual or whatever he left behind. So they immediately suspected Dan. And then once they had probable cause to investigate him, because they found this evidence in the woods, they were straight to Dan's house. However, Dan foresaw them coming, ran out the back, ran out of his house, and fled.
1: Mm.
4: And then by this point, only innocent people don't really tend to run. So pretty much everyone in town knew that Daniel Laplante was responsible for these these triple homicide. So what followed next was the um, the largest manhunt in Massachusetts history. Apparently, so the um, they called in the state police. They even called in some FBI, and they said we have to find this suspect, Daniel Laplante. His, his face was on newspapers all over the all over the state. And um, yeah, they said we've got to find him. We've got to find him. He said he can't get far. He can't drive. Hasn't got a license. He hasn't got any money, so he can't. The only place he can really go is, is on foot. So we got to find this guy.
2: Mm. I'm assuming I, I, this is when they finally catch him on 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 the run. He's carjacked uh, someone's car.
4: Well, he he tries his, his luck really at wooden houses because he's looking for a car. Dan thinks he had the best way to escape freedom is to look for a car, and his plan was to go to Fitchburg where his sister lives. And stay with her. Now, of course, that's just an example of Dan's lack of understanding of of the the consequences of his crimes. Really, you know, mm. like he's, sure outside He thinks he can just hide out at his sister's house, like his sister's going to go, oh yeah, coming in, just hide out here for a few days. I mean, Dan had never really faced consequences in his life, so this is a perfect. Uh, you know, it's very, it's very much him. So he's trying to find a car. He goes through lots of houses in towns and the Most people don't know who he is so they tend to go away however he comes to the home of pamela makala he breaks into the back of her house he's looking for her car keys he can't find them however pamela comes home while danny's in the kitchen and she walks in and she sees dan eating a sandwich at her table just as if it was as if he was an old friend and then Pam realises who Dan is. She says she was at work an hour before and she saw his face on the front of a the newspaper. And then she gets home and there he's waiting in the kitchen. And he's got a knife in one hand. He's got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the other. And then Pam doesn't quite know what to do. And I, 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 love, I love Pam. She's a good friend of mine now. She says, she told me, she said the, her first thought was to find something hard and smash him over the head, but she couldn't find anything hard. So she had to go with her. <laughs> she had to wow. do this again. Yeah, so Dan held her. At, um, he, he had a gun as well at this point. He held the same gun that he killed the Gustafsons with, had A gun and a knife. So he took Pam at gunpoint, and he made her drive him where he wanted to go. So they got into her car, which was a massive orange van, which was very lucky that it was so uh, visually striking because it comes in useful later. And then she got down in the car, She only managed to drive him down the road before she put the car in. uh, What's your equivalent of neutral in America?
2: (laughs) Neutral, I I think. Neutral? Also neutral, yes.
4: I thought it was park or something. I don't know. So they put it in neutral. Then she jumps out the car. She she gets like barely half a mile down the road. Jumps out the car, runs like hell, leaves Danny in the car on his own. And then she sees her car speed off. So Dan is like hijacked to the car in panic. And he's going to where. However, Dan can't drive very well. He didn't have a license, so he was just trying to, you know, he was uh, doing what he could. So he wasn't going to be able to go like on freeways or anything in the car because he didn't know right. how to drive. So and then, fortunately, Pam uh, managed to track down a cruiser, and in the cruiser is uh, Tom, the guy I mentioned earlier, the police officer that found Dan at the, at the Bowen house and was the one who suspected the Gustafson murders to be committed by Dan, finds Tom and she tells Tom the direction that Dan was headed. Tom calls in reinforcements, gets everyone in this direction and they search this entire area Mm. and their theory was that Dan was trying to go to a train station because that's the, the easiest way for him to flee. So they cancel all the trains in the area and they searched nearby the nearest train station and Over the road, there was a a lumberyard and they had sniffer dogs and the sniffer dogs were trying to pull them into the lumberyard. They said, right, someone in here, someone hiding in here. At the back of the lumberyard was this giant um, trash compactor, I guess, big brown thing. They pull all the trash out and there hiding inside was Daniel LaPlante. Wow. Been Been on the run for about two days or so. Uh, and that's the end of his story.
2: So, unfortunately, we're running out of time. But I, I do want to quickly just ask you what what he was eventually charged with, and um, and 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 what he was sentenced.
4: Dan was he was only ever tried for the murders because he could, he was also on um, at the time. He was also uh, what's the word he'd been he was going to be trialled for sexual assault because he'd committed several rapes in his youth and he was going to be trialled for uh i'm not sure what the exact charge was but stalking and the home invasion charge basically for the bow and stuff but he never got around to those crimes because he was charged of uh homicides who was awarded three life sentences and that kind of overwrote all these other charges so he was only ever charged with uh multi-homicide basically and he was given three life sentences uh 15 years per each victim which was uh, all he could be awarded with because he was 18 years old at the time mm. uh, a sentence he's still still serving to this day
2: Wow. So, okay, finally, Joe, we ask all of our guest experts this question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or a thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the crimes of Daniel LaPlante. Who or what mm. would that be?
4: Oh, man. Oh. Sorry, I'm going to need to think about this one. <laughs> this is a, this is a really <laughs> question. Uh, I would blame the lack of. The lack of support that he was given as a child, like it was obvious to see that Dan wasn't a normal kid. He had many problems that were obvious to even the layperson, and nobody really provided him any help. Like one or two teachers tried, but he just kind of always slipped through the cracks. And there were multiple opportunities to catch him, put him behind bars, and no one ever did. And it ended with the the death of three innocent people. So I would say the lack of support and maybe the lack of care you know Mm. no one just cared to to do anything about it you know like it was society's problem not their personal problem and i think that's what led to the the downfall of him and the tragic loss of three people
2: joe thank you so much for uh speaking with us today and walking us through this very traumatizing and scary case
4: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate
2: it. If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash The Alarmist. And stay tuned because next week we will be discussing the Joan Crawford and Betty Davis feud. The Alarmist
3: Powered by ACAST I'm Nick Friedman I'm Lea Alec-Murray And I'm Leah President And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life and- Yeah, I agree We're covering all the classics I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend that I don't right <laughs> Hold it in. Hold on. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. No, I- you can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.